The Ohima Health and Wellness Podcast is a place created for people to share their experiences and lives that can include triggering and sensitive topics, such as different types of abuse, such as racism, sexism, substance abuse, classism, etc. The content in the podcast and on our webpage are not intended to constitute or be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your therapist or other qualified mental health professionals with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay seeking it because of something you have heard on the podcast or on our website. We aim to create a safe and brave space that prides itself in the inclusivity of Black, Indigenous women of color. Thank you for your time and continued participation and support. Now let's get into the show. Welcome for our next guest. Her name is Josie Ampa, and she's currently a dual degrees master student, um, receiving her degrees in social work and in education. She's a clinician and a curriculum writer at the University of Denver. She's also a learning and development facilitator for a startup in Philly. She's also an educational consultant for a nonprofit educational organization and a therapist at a training institute in Colorado. Welcome, Josie. Also, by the way, everyone, she's my younger sister. So (laughs) welcome, welcome. (laughs) So Josie, tell us about your journey of becoming a clinician. Yeah, um, I think my journey in becoming a clinician is very much so based on the fact that I wanted to see systems dismantled. Mm. And to see systems dismantled, I thought working from the micro level first would help really, really help individual family systems and just community Mm -hmm. before delving into the into the more macro or bigger scale work. So another way of saying that is I really wanted to work with people individually and help smaller groups of people who are very much mm-hmm. so and that will eventually have a domino effect to um, working with and helping larger communities and systems. But in terms yes. of my own personal journey of, of getting there, um, I first knew I wanted to be a clinician at the end of my undergraduate career. I went to the University of California, Santa Barbara, go Gauchos. Um, and- I didn't do the ole ole thing. <laughs> oh, the ole ole thing, but I will do it right now. I'll spare y'all. Um, <laughs> I had a role there. It was actually through student government where I was doing a lot of advocacy work. And from doing that, I really loved it. But then I thought like, ah, I have to wait to get like a psychology degree um, to do that. So um, I, I was like, let me just go into teaching first and see how that goes and how that feels. And if I wanna be a teacher, yeah. um, if I wanna get a psych degree later, I can. But then after teaching, um, I realized like teaching revealed even more and I live by the phrase uh porque no las dos like why not both like mm, just yes 
Um, and I know it stresses my family out and it's fine. I mean, I'm alive. I'm good. I made it here in one piece. Um, yes. But I think that I, I realized that I didn't just want to be a teacher. I wanted to be a teacher and a mental health professional. Yeah. And I think in the roles that I have now, I'm beginning to get to a place where I'm really seeing the balance between the two. And of mm -hmm. course, I've had internships and such along the way that have been really helpful to that. But yeah, my journey is just, I'll call it like a, a roller coaster where I haven't thrown up yet. <laughs> really fun, but also really scary at the same time. Yeah, I love that. Oh, wow. Well, I know you, I know you, you think the family feels as though you're doing too much, but um, one thing to know about my sister and I know she's my sister and I know we're like, oh my God, siblings, but um, she is exactly like our mother, very strong, very, um, she will do what she wants when she wants to do it. Um, and then she will work her butt off to make it happen. So um, yes. and I think, I think our mom taught us that, but that's one thing I, I think Josie kind of figuring out she I was you know it's very fortunate that you were able to figure out what you wanted to do um because some people including myself still trying to figure it out <laughs> but at least at least you have that um okay so I I think one question we can kind of go off of that is um some advice that you would give yourself from the time you thought you realized you wanted to be a clinician and work at be a teacher and then be an educator, um, but then also be a therapist. What is some advice you would give yourself three years ago and how does that tie into today? Mm, okay, well, I'll first say that like the road to being a clinician was definitely not a short one. It had yeah. child welfare and doing like being in dependency and neglect for a good bit and then going into like uh like doing some stuff in school districts and like which I love I could go back to that I would um and just like trying out different things and like doing mm. different things um so I definitely want to emphasize that like it was definitely not a straight line um the advice I would give myself three years ago so this time three years ago so in 2018 I was still teaching, yeah. I'd gotten into grad school um, and I was getting ready to move to Denver. And I think I was really excited, by the way, I was teaching up in the mountains, working with students who traditional learning environments were not conducive for them. So they were in this alternative school, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so that's where I was and I was really passionate about it, but I really wanted to get more training. So I think the advice I would give myself is to breathe like mm. it'll be fine you know yes yes and I have some friends even who are in social work with me who are like you spent your entire master's degrees less yeah so like mm. I, I'm gonna be honest like outside of very few classes and very few experiences like I didn't enjoy grad school I think it took more of a toll on me and I'm honestly I'm recovering from it uh, it's very much so like wiping it off type of feeling and taking the degrees and moving forward. So I think I would yeah. let myself to really just breathe and to enjoy the journey rather yeah. than doing the journey like it's a war. Because mm. I think especially going to such a white institution, yeah. I always had, I always felt like I had to have my guard up. I always felt like I had to be three times smarter. I always had to mention that I was a dual degree to be able to get, I think if I had just 
relaxed a little bit more and gotten to know more people outside of the very few that I did, I think I would have enjoyed the journey of it more rather than just the end solution. And it's gotten to the point where like, I don't even want to walk. Yeah. Congratulations. My family is forcing me to do it. Like yes, I do. My, my mother and mm. father are like, you got two degrees. Why don't you want to walk? I said, I don't, <laughs> I don't want to go back to campus. Like I, yeah. like going back to campus literally gives me so much anxiety and I wish that wasn't the case. Yeah. So yeah, I would just say, especially to anyone who's going into a dual degree, one, call me, I'll give you advice. I would say if it's something that you really want to do like just enjoy it Mm. at the end of the day like you're gonna look back and I'm beginning to look back and I'm like damn I didn't enjoy any of it I was just and crying the whole time um I know I tend to go around in circles so that was no that was good yeah that Mm -hmm. was good I'm we're following And honestly, Josie, I empathize so hardcore with being at a predominantly white institution in grad school because I was going to, when I got my MSW, it was in the South and literally it was completely white. And um, I felt like almost like a duty to be like extra, you know, like in, Mm -hmm. in debates and just to call people out when they were being culturally insensitive and honestly, I dealt with a lot of, like, a lot of, um, I'm not going to get too much into it, but so I definitely almost got kicked out of my program because so many people were complaining about me that I was making them uncomfortable, but, mm-hmm. um, yeah, you know, kind of like <laughs> white woman tears, I will say it was like a few white woman tears that almost got me kicked out of my program, but, um, I'm so glad that you were, you were on it though. I feel like, yeah. I don't know. It's, uh, yeah, but I'm sorry that you did not have an enjoyable time. Cause I actually feel the same way. Like when I think back on it, it was very stressful and I felt very isolated. And, um, so I empathize with that. Yeah. And I will say that like, maybe this is just nostalgic talking. I think that I'm now beginning to see the pockets of joy that I have. Mm, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. what were some of those things that you saw oh yeah so I think I just got a lot of pockets of joy from faculty and education and social work like I said before but like even talking to like Ramona Beltran who leads a lot of our equity initiatives at the university and like just a, like I just feel like if anyone gets a chance to read anything she's written it's just phenomenal her and Dr. Ortega Come continue to blow my mind with everything that everything that they share. So there are definitely like pockets of joy, and yeah. I think the biggest pocket of joy was being a researcher and working with uh, Jen. I know I'm giving all these professors shout outs, but I love um, that. <laughs> I I worked in child welfare research. I'm with an amazing faculty member who's just become such a mentor and such a guide to me um, and really is encouraging me to, to like not feel like I can't be a researcher with just a master's degree and like really making the PhD a choice. Like I want to yeah. get, I 
want to get it and I want to be a researcher. So there, I think the biggest pocket of joy has been the faculty, um, but the University of Denver is very much so an eclectic place with a myriad of experiences and it's almost like binoculars. Whoever you hand the binoculars to, they'll give you a very different story of the university. That's mm. the best thing. Um, but I, that's, I think another big piece of advice that something that I did do that I would do again is really get connected to faculty that I liked. Because even mm -hmm. the faculty that I did research with, I had her my first quarter of my first degree in grad school. And I just finished a project with her in September of, of last year. Um, so just even being connected and getting that support I honestly made it very, 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 very much so more bearable. I think if I hadn't had those relationships, I probably would have given up. Mm, wow. Mm. That's real. I'm so glad you had them. That's so important. Like so fucking important. Sorry for my language. Um, <laughs> Actually, Josie, I'm curious, what's your ideal population that you would you would like to work with? You know, Mitra, <laughs> you are the seventh therapist to ask me that question. <laughs> um, I think as I'm even going into like being a clinician full time, I'm finding that the area and population that I want to work with is should be the area that is just most comfortable and most natural to mm, yes um, mm -hmm. which i thought would be kids going in i thought i would want to mm. be like uh, working with children and blah and like i'm working with some kids now and it's great but i've really mm. found that working with young women of color yes been such an empowering experience not only for them but for me and mm. i would say I have some clients who are older, who are like above the age of 65. And I just find that to also be such a blessing because mm, not mm -hmm. only am I like providing therapeutic wisdom and leadership and things of that nature, like there's just so much life and wisdom that they're bringing into the sessions that mm -hmm. so even such a learning for me. So you really want to ask about like the areas, if I could just pick who to work with every single time, <laughs> I would say probably be those two populations. Wow. I love that. Yeah. And I love that you said you also learn from your clients because I honestly mm. feel the same way. I mean, even doing it as long as I have been, I truly feel like you, I mean, you do, you always learn something from someone, you know, and right. it's, it's like a really like, beautiful thing to have a really good therapeutic relationship with someone and you know you're holding that space and you're giving them right. a psychoeducation and everything but you're also learning things from them too and that's I love that I love how you answered that <laughs> I also love those populations that you mentioned I know mm -hmm. I was about to be like y'all <laughs> it's like the same wavelength here <laughs> I love it Which I know so we're great. gonna have to have we're gonna have to join forces one day and do some do some shit <laughs> yes learning about like getting licensed in California and I learned that I don't have to do my hours all over again for California oh what that's amazing oh. literally I was like oh I just have to take the jurisprudence and then I'm in Cali oh I'm about to destroy this field like, hey then maybe oh, you can move to where I, I live I didn't know that yeah um 
So California. <laughs> You're like, wow, what? I'm coming. Yes. Yeah. So you, okay. So yeah, you know what? They change things all the time. So sometimes I didn't know what the reciprocity was for Colorado and here. So you don't have to do your, you can bring all your hours and you just, what? You just take do the you, test. You just take the, the law and ethics. Oh yeah. Okay. I think it was like the California culture course or something like that. Mm. well any new therapist they're getting a little info right now too i know <laughs> like, seriously right <laughs> oh my god josie i can't wait for you to be here um specifically your sister wants to come wants you to come to move to where she is which is in northern california because when nobody assigned well I know Mitra, you're in Southern California, but yeah. <laughs> Northern California. Um, so when I have babies, you can come and help me take care of them. <laughs> joking, I'm wow, joking, I'm joking. <laughs> joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. No, I I want all I care for is that my sister's happy and everybody's happy yes. at the end of the day. Yes. And we need a therapist like you here. We need we more. We need. Yeah, we got to take over the mental health. <laughs> For real, for real though, there's not many of us in it, you know. Um, yeah. So, but Josie, some something that I actually wanted to also ask mm -hmm. you too um, was just that work-life balance, because I know you. Mm -hmm. So you're doing that dual masters, doing all these jobs, and we're like, what is happening? And then you know, you seem stressed pretty much all the time. But then you know, sometimes we have to bring you down to earth, and that's okay <laughs> because you're going through a lot. But that's good. Um, so what is your work-life balance and how do you manage all of it? I figured out work-life balance a week ago. <laughs> oh, Jesus. A week ago. Okay, no, sure. Never too late to learn. Never too late to learn. <laughs> a week ago. Like actual like work-life balance, not just work balance, balancing all of the things. Because mm. for two and a half years, I was just balancing how to do all of these different roles but I really wasn't living life outside of that I was just mm -hmm. so enmeshed in the field and so enmeshed in the work that it was just work, work balance but mm -hmm. uh, a week ago in starting my most recent job uh, I realized even from looking at the different therapist schedules and seeing like some folks only work five days some folks do four days some folks mm -hmm. do five days so my mind was blown because for <laughs> yeah no for real though she like called me and she was like what do uh, i do literally i learned work life because i realized yeah. like i i have to live yeah. outside That's of work. Real. i have to um, and yes, the work that I do is enjoyable. And of mm. course, in the past two and a half years, I've definitely had really great experiences outside of work and I've been able to hang out with friends, et cetera. But like everything was surrounded by work and school. Mm. And I think starting these new roles really taught me like the work has to surround me, not the other way around. Wow. So for me, and yes, I am a passion planner ambassador. So if you want a uh, 10% off. <laughs> she really is though. She really is. Shameless plug. <laughs> Use my code and you get 10% 10 off your order. 
She really um, is though, for real. <laughs> 100% a fashion planner ambassador. Uh, and Julia Trinidad created this amazing planner. Wonderful woman of color, also from California. Is, isn't she from UCLA? I think she went to UCLA. I'm not, I'm not sure. Do know her? I, that's what I was wondering. What's her name? Um, and Julia Trinidad. I don't know. Is she black? No. Uh, I, I'm not exactly sure where her... Uh, racial identity is you know but somebody do you well, know when she graduated well we'll figure this out later but I know she's from Orange County like Catherine and I like amazing amazing woman amazing amazing she's person Orange County too um wow okay yeah Ooh. so I started using her planner uh when I first started grad school and in each month like if you go through it, it's hard to explain if you're not looking at it, but after like each month, there's space to reflect on the month that you just had. So she has these like guiding questions and like mm-hmm. there's always a quote to guide your week. And I think in the midst of the madness, mm. like my, and I know this sounds super trivial, but my planner really grounded me. Um, no, that's it, real. It forced me to stop. It forced me to like, reflect at some times. It forced me to actually allow myself to feel sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of the quotes that were in there were very much so like what I needed in that week. I was like, how did Angelia know I was going to need this this week? But just having a resource mm-hmm. like that, that was created by people of color, um, supported by people of color from California, it just was very much so a big part of my work-life balance, even when it was work-work balance, because I would give myself a little bit of space and time for life um, and give myself a little bit of time to reflect. So like I've gotten some of my friends on it. Um, I've, I have their sticker book. I have their desk calendar, <laughs> all my money at this point, because it's just been so crucial to to the experience. What was the question before I started going on on fashion plan? No, you you answered no, it. The you work answered life, it. Work life mm-hmm. balance, yeah, and that's so important as a mm-hmm. therapist because I feel like we we forget that shit. We for real mm-hmm. do, especially when we're passionate about the work. We're like giving, 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 give, 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 and yeah. then like take on, take this on, take this on, take this on, and then we forget about ourselves. So yeah, yeah, I'm so glad that you, and about the, the scheduling thing, girl, literally, I was just telling your sister, I was just telling Kat that I was moving things around in my schedule because oh, I want right. to work less days in the week. Yes, uh, so, yes, uh. you know, I was just like, all right, like, I felt like I was, you know, I was like trying to accommodate my, my clients as best I could. And then I was realizing I was kind of putting myself on the back burner. Um, so yeah. I was like, okay, let me see if I can move these around things around, you know? So yeah, that's good. That's self-care. We, we keep preaching self-care, right? But we have to take mm-hmm. care of ourselves we before we can give care yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm, to other folks. Yeah. yeah. I was like, yes, Mitra, switch that calendar around. Uh, <laughs> had to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, I do actually have another question um, and maybe we can kind of turn the conversation to destigmatizing mental health in mm. underrepresented minority communities. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about that, Josie, and um, dismantling those stereotypes and the stigma for women of color? Um, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about your experience with that? 
I'm I'm debating whether to answer this as an educator first or as a social worker first. Ooh, Jesus. Okay, well, you have one educator here and you have one therapist here, okay? Yeah. So <laughs> you can answer it. And then there's a bunch of us listening too. So answer it the way you would like to answer it. I think I'll start off answering it as an educator and curriculum developer. Um, I was actually telling this to the group that I'm consulting with in Colorado, but curriculum in and of itself is a tool of dismantling systems of oppression mm-hmm. because directly in, in its development, if it's focused on centering minoritized communities and those who have been most harmed and most impacted, it can very well change the systemic ways that especially mm. are learning from generation to generation. So I think dismantling the idea that like mental health was not important and mm. mental health was just all of that, I think really starts with how we're teaching um, and how we are really sharing knowledge from generation to generation. So that's my educator answer, curriculum writer answer. Um, as a social worker and as a therapist, I think it very much so um, is about validation. Mm. I spend, I, I would argue, at least half of my time as a therapist validating that the, the fact that my clients are allowed to have mental health concerns. Mm. Um, just, just validating like it's, it's not only is it okay, Yes. But it's, it's important to recognize, and this therapeutic space is yours. I am merely mm. a facilitator of it. I am mm. merely just a guide. I am literally just holding the flashlight as you walk through it. Like, that's all I am. Yeah. Uh, so I think in dismantling mental health, it really starts with validating people's experiences. Mm. Uh, I think that's true for folks who identify as people of color. I think that's true for folks who identify as part of the LGBTQIA plus communities. Mm. Like we really just have to validate, like no one's experience is invalid. If you are Mm. fighting against systems of oppression, your experience is valid. If you're Mm. trying to be an ally to someone or an accomplice to someone, and you're trying to find support from other allies, that is valid. You know what I mean? So I think even, like I even am a big part of the therapy I'm doing being in Colorado is very much so examining even what white guilt looks like and how that impacts communities of color like I'm I'm 100% serious oh y'all think I'm playing yes (laughs) with my supervisors about like what does it look like to examine what in a therapy session as a as a clinician of color and it's tough but like, that's valid too. The fact that you recognize that your guilt is there and you don't want it to be there and you actually just want to be able to help communities who are minoritized, mm. like that is that is valid. Um, so I would say the stigmatizing really starts with validation. And I think the second thing is really being knowledgeable. Having that education is just so huge. Um, and the third thing I would say is just having community. Um, mm. I, I mean, I'm gonna call Mitra right now, but like, I've haven't had a therapist of color friend who I can call and be like, what the hell is this? How do you manage? How do you do this? Blah. Until my sister introduced me to Mitra. Like, <laughs> oh my God, now I'm about to cry. Oh. <laughs> like, 
it has been like three. Meanwhile, I've known Mitra 10 plus years and I didn't even know. Like, I wish we had, I wish I had done this earlier, but that's okay. Like, everything. And don't get me wrong. I have a lot of white therapist friends who I love. Don't get me wrong. But there is just a different need as a mm. clinician of color that is just unlike yeah. right. you know? Um, and yeah. a lot of friends who are in social work and are people of color are not clinicians. Wow. Mm, okay. They're in forensic social work. They're in macro. Mm. They're in child welfare. They're in like, but they're not clinicians. So that experience mm. itself is a very different one. Um, so I, I was even talking to a friend about this a couple of weeks ago. I think that there needs to be continual spaces. And I'm actually in one right now studying for my licensure exam. Um, where like we're able to gain support from one another. Mm. Uh, and I mean, yeah, I feel like that's the best way I can answer that as of now. I would say my understanding and how I've built community has changed mm. over time. So I think how I would have answered this question in 2013 versus mm. now, very different things. So like, about me, I was in marching band for three years. Um, you can just not, hold up. She was not just in marching band. I was a drum major for the whole thing. There we go. She was uh, a drum major, there we go. Okay. <laughs> I was an assistant drum major. The head drum major was incredible. Um, and I feel like that was the first time, especially like in, I had just got started public school where like I actually had a community of color that like looked like me. Mm. So I think in terms of like community, we went through, we went through everything together in high school. Um, and then going into college, I just got enmeshed with all the Africans on campus and all the black people on campus. But then when I left California, all of that was gone. Mm. like it's it, it felt so isolating um not having that same level of community that I had but lucky for me I had amazing people of color who I was living with and teaching with etc but I think in terms of communities it I agree it does go beyond geographical space and I think in order to build community I think it's imperative to continually be intentional on checking in. I think that's how communities are built. Because when mm. there's space and time to really just say like, hey, how are you doing? Then there's just that knowledge of the fact that like you were on somebody's mind mm -hmm. to the point where like they wanted to check in with you and see how you were doing. So for me, I know I'm not the best at it. I definitely have friends who are way better at it than I am. Um, even taking the time to like check in and having even like a small socially distanced gatherings and things of that nature, uh, I think really build community. Um, and even thinking about like my family back home and even thinking about like how I don't get to see them as much as I used to knowing, knowing that my sister will FaceTime me every single day and literally be like, <laughs> your mother is asking if you are alive so I'm calling to make sure you are alive <laughs> I can say yes I, I am love it. 
um, I think is also really helpful. So I really think mm-hmm. community comes out of intentionality and comes out of mm-hmm. out of care. Like there's yes. a station. Her name is Nell Noddings. If you haven't read her stuff, I would highly recommend it. But she talks about this notion of care and care being beyond just saying you care, but you're mm. exhibiting. Actions, yes. Um, she speaks about it through an educational context. And also I am all brain. I am all books. I'm a nerd. So I might reference scholars <laughs> in nature because I just feel like it's easiest for me to explain things. But um I just believe that like community really is stemmed from the intention that comes behind it. Because if you call yourself a part of the community and there's no space and time to, or like there's no like care to like even check in, like, is that really community then? And I understand people get busy. I'm definitely one. So I think even taking time to think about our busier friends and making mm. sure that they're alive and making mm-hmm. sure they're well and making sure that they're good mm-hmm. is, is super important. And I even think about the fact that like, even the folks I was in AmeriCorps with teaching in Estes Park, Colorado with on the mountain are still some of my favorite people. Um, and when I'm able to check in with them, though it's not all the time, I still consider many of them a part of my community because of the fact that, well, some of them are social workers, one. And a lot of them just have a lot of care for the work that they're doing. So I can even applaud them from afar. Um, but yeah. And even sometimes it's not really even about like, if you're able to be in that person's corner every single day. Um, I think it's even about like standing in the toughness with them even when it's more difficult, more complicated, et cetera. Mm. Josie, what are, what are some ways that you think like we can encourage our communities to reach out yeah. for help when they are struggling with their mental health? Because as you said, it, it's, it's re- very stigmatized still, especially in our communities of color. Um, how, what are some ways, I guess, that you, you encourage folks and yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to answer this in, in a very conventional way. Um, I would, I'm going to start off by saying that like, you have to meet people where they are. Mm-hmm. Mm, that part. Mm-hmm. Because like mm-hmm. if you keep telling somebody you need help, you need help, you need help, you need help. Mm-hmm. Like if if they don't, if they in themselves are not feeling like it is the time that they need to reach out for help. I mean, of course, there are exceptions. We may have to do mental health holds. Things happen, but in more, especially more mild situations, like really allowing folks to take their journey and just being with them even when you may not 100% agree with the way that they may be going about things. Like if you feel like someone needs to go to a therapist and they're not ready to go through a therapist, if you force them to go to a therapist, they're not gonna gain from therapy all that they're gonna gain from therapy. Um, So I think it's just really even considering and focusing on um, what it is that they need in that moment 
And then from there, once especially that trust has been established, being able to say like, this is what I'm seeing. Is this what mm-hmm. you, if this is what you're seeing, I can support you in getting help in this way. Yeah. But really about yeah. self-determination. Like I am a proponent. I need a t-shirt that says, I believe in self-determination. Because trying oh, to tell that part, it, it just doesn't work. It just doesn't work. Right. And, and also what I'm hearing you say is that we don't need to be pathologizing people or making them feel that way. And that's so important. That's why, you know, well, I don't even know if you want to get in this discussion, but I wanted to be like, so what do you think about the DSM? But I don't even know if we want to get into, into, uh, unpacking that. What's the DSM? Is this a therapist term? Um, it's the diagnostic statistical manual. Oh, so <laughs> diagnosis that is used for for human beings that's related oh, wow. to health, that purple book mm-hmm. that one from the american psychological association any diagnosis from ptsd uh wow. yeah, rumination uh ev- everything under the sun the american Psych- psychological association came or had a group of folks who were medical doctors psychologists etc mm-hmm. come together to come up with diagnoses that are uh, very much so socially constructed to fit the needs of insurance companies. But you know, I'm not going to go there right now. I'm just going to- That's why I said, "Mm, do you even want to get into it? Maybe not. Maybe another, it's another time. Mm I think the only, I think the only thing that could potentially be positive about the diagnostic statistical manual is that it gives language and that language can very much so help see people what, or help ex- people explain what it is that's happening to them. Because if they're like, I'm experiencing this and this and this and this and this, and you're like, okay, that could be a myriad of things. But if they say, mm-hmm. I have been diagnosed with PTSD and they agree with that, mm-hmm. that very much so brings in self-empowerment to be like, I'm right. I, this thing and I and my clinician came to the conclusion that this is what I have and I want to work through this thing so that's the only thing that I would say is positive about it is that it really moves to power for folks and gives Mm -hmm. folks the language to be able to have conversations about their mental health but a lot of it is misunderstood um a lot of this it a lot of it is very much so centered in whiteness but if it's Mm. used well if it is used well, it could be helpful, depending on the situation. Right. That was a very diplomatic response. No, for it. real. Um, <laughs> for I, real. Uh, wow. I totally feel you. And I, I often find that I see that folks. Okay, let me see. How do I, how do I, I'm like, I'm trying to be. <laughs> okay. I don't want to go on a rant, but I have noticed that some things that I would be like, okay, these are symptoms of severe trauma. There are some clinicians that slap a personality disorder on Mm -hmm. folks or other types of mood disorders when I see a direct connection to the severe trauma that the client has experienced. And so, and the thing with certain diagnoses, as Josie knows, is that there's a huge stigma that comes with a lot of these diagnoses. So 
a lot of times I've even heard working in a hospital, you know, there's uh, clinicians will see a certain diagnosis and they're like, oh gosh, this person has this. I, I don't want to work with this. And I would be like, yo, we, we don't even know you haven't met the person yet. So we're not gonna look at this and make some preconceived notions, you know? So I guess anyway, that's just my, my little two cents about, Mm. about my issues. I agree. With the DSM, I feel sometimes, um, yeah. I would say the DSM is like a hammer. A hammer can do a lot of damage, but if it's used in the way that it, it was intended to be used, and if it's mm-hmm. used in a way that actually empowers individuals, it can be a very good tool. But if absolutely, it can do a whole lot of damage. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think if if you think critically as a clinician while you're navigating, you know, diagnoses and stuff I think then that that's good you know if you're mindful of like situational things and the the experiences of your client and um I think that's really important and I yeah anyway I don't want to go on a tangent about this because I really could really get on one with you Josie and you know we'll be talking about it for like another hour (laughs) Mm -hmm. it sounds like it it sounds like it Mm -hmm. Mm, yeah I mean gives me a headache half the time but you know that's fine (laughs) oh well um okay well that was interesting I feel like as an educator kind of having like that lens and listening to you both talk about this it's like wow that's really deep because I had no idea what DSM was (laughs) or like what it entailed I didn't even realize like the meaning but now that I know um that's actually it's really powerful to know this yeah, the history of it is fascinating if anybody wanted to to look it up. Like some of the things that have been pathologized that were in the DSM that have now been taken out because they were problematic. I feel like it's worth looking into too if you're intrigued by like the whole process of how the DSM has like evolved over the years. And yeah. Yeah, I do. Mm. Wow, okay. Um, so... Josie, one thing we wanted to ask, we're cutting into a little bit about time here, but it's all good. This has been a very interesting conversation. Um, One thing we wanted to ask you was um, in terms of just even, we talked about community and encouraging community to seek mental health. Now let's talk about those breaking of those barriers. How can we break the barrier in access to mental health? Ooh, Um, how to break the barriers? I think the first thought that came to my head is how do we break the barriers, but still make sure that folks are paid what they deserve at the same time. Mm. I think that in terms of just breaking the barriers in and of, the, of themselves, I think just of creating and allowing for space for conversations around mental health is really helpful. Um, and in terms of like the barriers just in getting services, I Mm. would say that you should lean into resources, but Mm. also not exploit the resources at the same time. Mm. Uh, But I know that's a, that's a weird balance. Uh, So I think even going to um, uh, like community mental health centers and things of that nature, like those are all very helpful and very important. But I also would want to add that, like, it's very important to 
care for and put your money into things that care for humans and what human needs are. Um, which is why I like the places that I work. Cause I feel like they, they do that really, really well. Um, but overall, I would say breaking the barriers really starts with open conversations and really dismantling mm-hmm. like, like the language around mental health and like, just right. not, like Absolutely. just creating space for folks to even ask questions. Right. I think it's those topics where folks really don't know. So Absolutely. I, I'm so open, especially in my intake sessions to really like hear about the fears that my clients have going into therapy and being like, how can we work through this together so that we can establish and build trust so that therapy is a positive experience for you? Because the last right. thing I would want is for any mental health service to be a negative one. And mm-hmm. I also want to mention the fact that like clinicians and therapists are not the only ones who do mental health work. I'll say that wow. again. Those who are in forensic social work, those who mm-hmm. are uh, uh, dependency and neglect, those who are in, there's just so many different fields within social work and therapy that are doing this work that very much so we don't even realize that they are doing this work it's it's so um it's so important to recognize and celebrate those who aren't necessarily in that therapeutic role so i think if anything they they make the therapist job a lot Mm. and more doable because there's that surrounding of resources i don't know if i answered the question but you did you did you did yeah Mm. I just wanted to mention one thing. I think that it's really important to break those barriers too, um, because it, we grew up in a in a space with our family um, and the people that we grew up, up around. Therapy wasn't something that was um, a positive thing. Um, I even remember one family member, I won't call this person out because we know this person, but <laughs> she told me that um, I would, it would go on like my permanent record if I went to therapy and that it would look bad Mm. and it wasn't until my sister became a therapist I might as well tell Mm -hmm. who this is it's our mother but 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 we we we, my sister became a therapist my mom realized like she's not gonna listen to this (laughs) Uh, she she like realized like oh my goodness this is like the most important thing in the world and my mom's an educator she was an educator for 30 plus years in middle schools and stuff but it's just that stigma, right? So I think right. even just having people of color, women of color, yes. folks, non-binary folks of color, LGBTQIA plus folks of color, just being in the mental health field, it's literally breaking a barrier. And I think it's the work everything. that you both are doing, it's everything. And the work that you both do, please, you, your your work is so, so important. So we appreciate you. Yeah. Aww. I love that, Kat. Yes, representation in the mental health field matters so fucking much people want to see people that look like them so that they can feel comfortable exactly people that understand exactly their experience you know like some of the things that really like make me feel good is when I've had a client be like I feel like you know she's like I feel like you just get certain things without me having mm. to over explain and I'm like I love that I can fucking be that you know what I mean right. because it's so right. important and it yeah I love that yeah, well, Josie, yes. so we want to know where we where are we plugging 
you, like so we can send people to see you you've got a website you've got a social media you like, want to share on? if you don't that's okay um, too we understand yeah 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 if you don't also this is completely <laughs> optional but you did say if people were doing dual degree they could reach out to you so i'm just saying you know <laughs> and also potential clients you know we can we can we can plug whatever you want so I created an Instagram that I'm actually gonna like <gasps> this summer. Um, that's called Sobe Shares. Um, oh, okay, I've, I've seen that. Okay, <laughs> I used it for like my undergraduate campaign and things, but I really just wanted to be a space where I share just my thoughts, and I almost want to use it as like my therapeutic page. So yes. at Joby shares, um, you can, it, it'll I'm go to follow it right now. It'll like come back to fruition in full force in the summer where it'll be like my own personal, like I'm a therapist. Here's where to find me page. Um, I believe the name is Joby shares. I hope I'm it right. Is. Um, yeah. Because when you were, so when my sister, she was the student advocate general at UCSB at one point where she was advocating for students and that's, that was her page. But I didn't know, I didn't know that was, that's what you're going to use, huh? That's what I'm going to use. I, I think I found it. Yep. Uh, it's there. Jovi shares. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I really wanted, I really want to expand that page to really talk about mental health and social justice and faith. I almost turning into like a little Instagram blog that I do on the side. Yes. So I'm planning on having that logged in and really answering folks using that as more of like my therapeutic page. So um, I guess this podcast is the first to hear of it because I haven't even told half my yes, friends. Yes, you heard it here first. Okay. But <laughs> yeah, if you want to reach out to me about a dual degree, et cetera, that, that's definitely the best place to do that. We can also take inquiries too, and then we'll we'll send it your way if it happens. Yeah, Absolutely. by email too. Okay. You both have my email. So that, that definitely is fine. And if you're in Colorado and needing a therapist, especially virtual, um, you can definitely get in contact with the podcast. They'll give yes. you my email to see if you're looking for a clinician that's kooky like me. <laughs> yes. 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 And maybe well, soon we can get you back to California. <laughs> yeah, yes. And uh, Northern California. So you can stay, you know, uh, live. Maybe. Southern California. <laughs> uh, uh, that's where the whole family is, girl. <laughs> um, it's nice to be cared for and wanted. It's a good feeling. <laughs> that's so funny. Aw. Well, thank you, Josie, for joining us. This was a great conversation. Yes. Thank um, you, again, Josie. yes, yes. And um, we'll put all your information on our our um, spot where we put all the information in. Um, so yes. yeah, thank you. <laughs> hey, I appreciate y'all having me. Yes, yes. Yeah. All right, and cue music. <laughs> Okay, I'm done.